Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We're very glad you're here for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool awaits you. We have all crazy martinis today. We're sad to tell you, but I think we had all bad at some point recently, Jim. So I guess this is kind of heading in the right direction. But when you think about the three topics we're dealing with today, maybe not so much. Uh, Let's start out in Ventura County, California. Ventura County, California has about 846,000 people in it. So far, according to their own statistics, they have, as of Tuesday anyway, 595 total cases. So it's probably a little over 600 at this point. Uh, They've got 19 deaths. They're being very proactive about it, as we're about to find out. Way too proactive, in fact. At the uh, county briefing yesterday, they brought out the health director for the county. His name is Dr. Robert Levin, and he's talking about stepped-up contact tracing. We've heard a lot about that, and so when people are confirmed to have a COVID infection, you want to know who they're around, basically around the time of the infection, and then you go check on those people to see how they're doing. Okay, even in a county where there's not that many infections, uh, due diligence seems okay. But then Levin says this. We also realize that as we find more contacts, some of the people we find are going to have trouble being isolated. For instance, if they live in a home where there's only one bathroom and there are three or four other people living there and those people don't have COVID infection, we're not going to be able to keep the person in that home. Every person who we're isolating, for instance, needs to have Uh, their own bathroom. And so we'll be moving people like this into other kinds of housing that we have available. You heard that right, Jim. If you test positive for COVID, but others in your house do not, and you only have one bathroom, they're going to force you to leave your home. I know we say this a lot in a jesting way with some news stories, but Jim, I thought this was America. Okay. The the serious question, first of all, will be then where are they going to put you? Other housing, he says, and they'll bring the food to you, which I'm sure will be delicious. Feels a little bit like prison. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Early on in this crisis, there was discussion, uh, particularly up in New York City, about using hotels as a way of uh, taking, particularly for health workers, for people who were not in a terribly serious state of the virus, but you still wanted to keep them isolated and away from lots of other people, and you wanted to free up hospital beds for the people who were super duper serious. Um, and that made sense, and that's okay, that's fine. If you have people who are, in, you know, first of all, no one likes to be separated from their family, but they also probably don't want to spread it to their family. There there's, it seems to be in, in a lot of these cases of, you know, thankfully, mostly local lawmakers, although maybe arguably it's some state lawmakers, an inability to accept that what you want as your ideal and what you're going to be able to do with the facts on the ground are often going to be different. And you're going to have to do the best you can. And a lot of your solutions are going to be kind of jury rigged and they're going to be kind of not perfect, but they're going to have to be good enough for now. I, I remember a... Um, Peggy Noonan column, probably about a year, maybe, you know, sometime in a year after 9-11 or so. And she talked about the fear of a chemical attack in New York City. And she started thinking about how can people protect themselves if, God forbid, there's a chemical attack and some sort of cloud of toxins or, or a virus or, or some sort of biological material was floating through the city. And she spoke to somebody who was an expert on that and who said, look, you need to have the equivalent of a safe room. If, and one of the lines that stuck out with me is, if you have a one-room apartment, 
that one room is your safe room, right? Now, maybe ideally, you'd have some sort of room that was, you know, away from all the windows, away from all the other, um, only had one exit and all that kind of stuff, and that would be perfect for it. You'd be able to seal that room off airtight uh, and have, but you still have some sort of filtered ventilation system to keep out any toxins or something. Yeah, that'd be great. But for a lot of people, they're not going to have that. So you'd have to make do with the best solution you can put together under these circumstances. That's what we're having to do in a lot of this. And the idea that, well, we, we need to separate people from using the same bathroom. Yes, yes, fecal material can carry the coronavirus. I bet you you wish you didn't know that. Um, you're you're going to be shedding viruses in, in all kinds of ways uh, while you have this. And obviously they say if you have a if you have someone in your family who's sick, uh, you want to you know, keep your distance from them. You probably want to put them in one room, probably their bedroom, and you'd rather not sleep in that bedroom. For people who live in one-bedroom apartments, that's not going to work for them very well. Um, this really does get, you know, get into this, into a, a you know, Ventura County, basically looking for a way to... Um, th these are not dolls. You can kind of you know, take it to put into different parts of the dollhouse or something like that. These are not little Lego figures that you can move around and like, with a giant hand. You're gonna have to accept that some people are going to live together with one person in the house having the coronavirus and the other person not, and the other person being at risk. Um, now, if that other person who's not exposed is immunocompromised, if that person is you know, elderly, maybe a decision like this probably makes more sense. I don't think it's a good idea for the state to be coming, for city officials to be saying, well, we're, you know, at, at some point you start looking like China, dragging people out of their homes and, you know, welding the doors shut and stuff like that. That's not the way we do these things in America. And I think this is, um, this is, you know, this continues to be a revelatory exercise in the thinking of all kinds of lawmakers across the United States. He said it so pleasantly, though, Jim. And that's what people think. Every, every, you know, when the government is going way beyond its bounds, you think it's going to be some sort of screaming jackbooted thug. But uh, sometimes it's just a really gentle, hey, we're going to do this. And uh, if you uh, are in this situation, we're going to have to remove you from your home. Okay, on to page two. All right, on to our second crazy martini now. And Joe Biden. Yeah, we're talking about Joe Biden again. Uh, this time, it's uh, Tara Reid is a tangential story. But of course, the big story for Biden in the past week is him adamantly denying uh, that he ever sexually assaulted Tara Reid. Didn't happen, he said to uh, Mika Brzezinski last Friday. But uh, while Joe Biden insists on his innocence and wants to have the opportunity to proclaim that this never happened, he doesn't seem to want that for anyone else, Jim. This is from The Hill. Former Vice President Joe Biden said Wednesday that if he's elected president, he will reverse a rule issued by Education Secretary Betsy DeVos aimed at bolstering protections for students who are accused of sexual assault on university campuses. In a statement, Biden said the new rule was an effort by the Trump administration to, quote, shame and silence survivors of sexual assault. Quote, it's wrong, Biden said, and it will be put to a quick end in January 2021 because as president... I'll be right where I've always been throughout my career, on the side of survivors who deserve to have their voices heard, their claims taken seriously and investigated, and their rights upheld. But uh, the new rule issued Wednesday narrows the definition of sexual harassment and requires schools to produce evidence and allow for the cross-examination of students who say they were assaulted, Jim. That really sounds horrible. The idea that you have to have evidence and that people can ask questions if you allege something. It should not be surprising that from this experience, Joe Biden has learned nothing, or at least gives the indication that he has learned nothing 
he may well be at the state where he cannot retain very much that he learns. One of the things that has been so frustrating about this topic, you know, going back from not just Me Too, but probably going back to uh, the sexual harassment uh, issue that, you know, from the Anita Hill hearings, or the idea of the recognition that certain people in a work environment were going to be terrible people and were going to try to take advantage of their employees, the powerful would try to take advantage of the powerless. Uh, the recognition that uh, you, w- there's been this inability to feel empathy for either side of this, or like maybe I should say insufficient empathy, because if you were sexually assaulted, if someone you love was sexually assaulted, if somebody you care about was sexually assaulted, you would hunger for justice like nothing else in the world. If someone you care about or you were sexually harassed, you would want that person held accountable like nothing else. But the flip side is that if you or your loved one or someone you know was uh, and, and respect and care about was accused of sexual harassment, well, you would want their name cleared like nothing else in the world. You, you would, you know, this would be this seething, burning outrage that a false accusation has now tainted this person's reputation. And these, these are two, you know, deep-rooted uh, instincts in the name of justice, and they can clash. They, they can run into each other because the problem is, is someone makes an accusation. We don't know if the accusation is true or not. I know you hear some people say, well, people, no, a woman would never lie about this. Well, I mean, some of them do. Do women frequently lie about this? I think we can you know, dispute the fact that most people do not run around making false accusations. I think most people would recognize that uh, uh, the experience of making the accusation of a particular public figure, particularly a popular public figure, means you're going to get a lot of people who are going to side with that public figure. They're going to call you a liar. They're going to call you, um, as James Carville had famously said about, you know, dragging a $20 bill through a trailer park. People feel like it's perfectly okay to say terrible things about you because you have offended them. You have outraged them by making an accusation against someone they respect. And this is very much at work in the, in the Tara Reid case. Uh, people who insisted believe all women came out and very comfortable saying that they don't believe all women. They don't believe this woman. And their ability of just sorting through this criteria is basically, do I like the person being accused or not? And I think most of us would agree, that is not a good way of judging this. This is, you know, it's probably a very human way of judging this. But um, early on, there were people who believed there's no way O.J. Simpson would ever kill his wife. It was unthinkable. He was a celebrity. He was famous. He was great. And then as the trial went on, people saw a side of O.J. Simpson that they realized they did not know. Every time I hear somebody saying, I know Joe Biden, I've known him for decades, he would never do something like this. Well, besides the fact that you have to avert your eyes from <laughs> all the number of times he has, you know, uh, smelled the hair and all the other times he's been publicly touching women in ways that they seem to be uncomfortable with. Um, look, if, if there's anything we, you know, politics should have taught us, the Bill Clinton stuff, all these other, very, uh, the, the Me Too revelations, the Epstein revelations, you don't really know people. You cannot look into a person's heart and know with absolute certainty uh, that they would or would not do this. Certainly not if you don't know them personally. And so there's this humility that is utterly absent from all this. And it's just the cherry on top of this entire process that Joe Biden, who believes that he is falsely accused, does not want to give other men all the legal rights they could possibly have to defend their reputations if they are falsely accused. Joe Biden learns nothing. Joe Biden understands nothing. Joe Biden knows nothing, much like Jon Snow in, in Game of Thrones. <laughs> 
Jim, my question is, why is this crime different? I mean, both sides, for the longest time anyway, you know, we have the, the etching on the top of the Supreme Court, equal justice under the law and part of our justice system, which is a good part of the justice system, is the right to confront your accuser. And for every other crime, nobody seems to really have a problem with that. But I don't know if it was a knee-jerk reaction by the Obama administration to Me Too or, or what it was, but suddenly this didn't warrant a cross-examination or the accused to be able to defend themselves. The joke answer here is because it's malarkey. That's Biden's assessment there. You know, around the time of this, you know, early 90s um, awakening to the serious, the prevalence of sexual harassment and the recognition that for a victim of sexual harassment or sexual assault, uh, testifying about it, talking about it, um, all of this is uh, emotionally extraordinarily painful for, for some women. And then sure. I should point out sure. for some men. This is hard. This is not something that people, and very, any, very few people be eager to do. Um, and so people, there's an understandable desire to be uh, sympathetic and empathetic and to recognize some victims don't want to psychologically relive what they went through. Uh, telling it to the police in the first case is hard enough. The the rape tests, the various physical things that have to be done to verify the the uh, the crime of rape and things like that. That you know, this is a horrible experience for somebody to go through, and then you want somebody to go through it psychologically all over again, in a courtroom with a defense attorney who's probably going to say make variations of the argument of you either a you're a liar, b it never happened, or c it happened and it was consensual and you're changing your mind now. All of this is a horrible experience for somebody to go through if they've re- genuinely been. Uh, sexually assaulted or harassed in some way. Yes. However, all of that, you know, the pro- the answer, I have a hard time believing the answer to that is, well, we're just going to take away the right to confront your accuser. <laughs> you know, like, you know, because this stuff is relevant. This is the stuff that's relevant for every other type of crime, including violent assault. And reliving a violent assault in a courtroom is not uh, particularly fun or, or, you know, something people want to do. Um, we've kind of accepted that the cause of justice will often require those who are making the accusation of the crime to just, you know, to answer questions about that crime in a court uh, environment. And that's, you know, I, the idea, that you, ultimately, if you want justice to be done, that is a necessary price to be paid. And at some point, some people decided, well, no, actually, we decide we don't need that. And unsurprisingly, as much as, yeah, maybe, you know, some people not having to testify about the crime, it spared them some emotional pain, it spared them the psychological trauma of reliving it, it also was not good for the cause of justice. And I think most of us would say, eh, that's, that's too difficult a, a trade-off to make um, because in the end, a false accusation and sending somebody to prison is a, um, for a crime they didn't commit is, uh, is probably one of the greatest sins a society can commit. On to our crazy martini number three here, Jim. And of course, New York has been the biggest outbreak of the coronavirus. And as a result, um, a lot of supplies and a lot of people flooded to New York City to help deal with this. Personnel uh, from other states, in fact, uh, were there for weeks. We saw the field hospital at the Javits Center, the field hospital from Samaritan's Purse and Central Park. And I think it's the latter one now that is at the centerpiece of this latest uh, head slapper from New York. This is from PIX11 News, New York's very own. Healthcare workers that came to New York to help fight the coronavirus pandemic at its epicenter will have to pay state taxes, according to the governor. That would be Andrew Cuomo. 
Uh, he said on Tuesday, quote, we're not in a position to provide any subsidies right now because we have a $13 billion deficit. So there's a lot of good things I'd like to do. And if we get federal funding, we can do, but it would be irresponsible for me to sit here looking at a $13 billion deficit and say, I'm going to spend more money when I can't even pay the essential services. So even though the state government asked thousands of people to come to New York from out of state to help fight coronavirus, they will have to pay New York state taxes, even on income they might make from their home states that they're paid while in New York. Cuomo said he needs help from Washington, of course, in order to cover the budget deficit. So, Jim, this is a good way to kick charity in the face. And the next time you need help in New York or some other place that has this policy, I won't be surprised if not as many people want to rush to the assistance. Yeah, no, no good deed goes unpunished. Um, out of all the things, look, we're, we're still a ways out of this, but a point is going to arrive where we're going to have to more, much more seriously and much more rigorously evaluate how each elected official handled this. And I think it's safe to say the president has made more than his share of not accurate statements and uh, crazy happy talk and all that kind of stuff. I think the media has been pretty tough on Bill de Blasio, although I was, uner- I was frustrated to see that his approval rating is still pretty high amongst New Yorkers. But I think Cuomo might have the single greatest gap between his reputation and the perception of how he's doing and how he's actually done. Earlier in the week on this podcast, we've talked about the New York State decision saying that nursing homes had to take people who had been diagnosed with coronavirus um, and put them back into the nursing home. Uh, even though obviously this was a po- you know a concentrated population of the people most at risk, unsurprisingly, the number of cases in nursing homes in New York is pretty darn considerable. Also in New Jersey, other statements from the way Cuomo has handled this are are you know pretty challenging. Look, we look back and tell the story of the coronavirus, and this is May seventh. Right? There, there's still some road ahead. There's still chapters of this story to be written. But as I laid out in today's morning, Joel, look, it is very clear that the epicenter is uh, of the virus outbreak in the United States is New York City. The Yale Medical School put out a report, it's in the New York Times front page today, which says that basically New York is where most of the cases across the country came from. Now, early in this process, I went through all the statements from New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and all the different ways that they said, no, things are fine, all the way up until like, you know, March 9th, 10th, 11th, March 5th, Bill de Blasio was insisting you can still get on the the New York City subways. There's no risk. We now know, yes, there was. And also, there are other factors. The the population density, the sheer amount of international air travel, various other factors make New York City a much tougher place to contain the outbreak of this virus than most other parts of the country. Most big cities are going to be this way. But I think very high on that list has to be the prevalence of mass transit, particularly the subway system, and the fact that for months and months, Americans were, uh, New Yorkers were getting onto the subway. I looked up the numbers. It's astounding. On any given day, anywhere between, you know, mostly it's around 5.5 million people get onto the New York City subway system. Grand Central Station, you're going to get like 150,000 people a day just getting onto the system, right? They're packed in. You've all seen, we've all seen the videos. If one person has it and they're coughing or they're breathing or they're speaking or any of these sorts of things and they use their hand, they put their hand on a uh, subway pole, they put their hand on a railing, on a stairway, they put the hand on the machine that spits out the tickets, you can imagine all the different people who are going to put their hands in the exact same place and probably catch the virus. And that is the, this is probably the single biggest factor. This is one of the early dominoes that fell, setting off all the rest of the dominoes. 
Um, look, there's going to be a lot of criticism of the Trump administration. There's going to be obviously the botching of the CDC test was a really important flaw. We didn't do nearly enough in those first couple um, uh, first couple weeks and months when we recognized what we were having. But if you want to look at the the real crux of one of the real moments where this turned into a small potentially local outbreak to one that was going to spread all throughout the country. The early decisions of New York are there. And by the, by the way, for, as I mentioned, everything about the subways, it is worth noting city government does not actually control the subways. It is actually run by New York state. So ironically, much more of the blame for this ends up on Cuomo instead of on de Blasio, even though I think both of them have a lot to answer for. Um, but this is one of those things where people, I, I the sneaking suspicion that a lot of New York city, you know, New York media, who want to, you know, who, who are willing to acknowledge, okay, de Blasio is an idiot. De Blasio says everything wrong, does everything wrong. Fine, we'll give up on him. But we can't acknowledge that our entire blue state model is failing. And also we can't acknowledge that public transportation could be a very bad thing to have in a uh, viral pandemic. Um, as I've, I wrote a couple of weeks ago about how we're going to see an exodus from the cities after this, just because you don't want to be stuck in a city in a small apartment. If, you know, God forbid we have another pandemic like this, by the way, we are every bit as vulnerable to another, another virus as we are to this one. Um, the wet markets in China are still open. The labs are still operating. If that was the Avenue, human beings come in come in contact with animals all around the world every day. And any one of those animals could have a contagious virus like this one. Most times they don't. Most of the time we're fine. We came up, we rolled snake eyes on this one. And I have not seen any connection of the virus from snakes. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, this, you know, we are at risk. So you, people are probably asking themselves, do they want to live in, in a big city anymore? Do they want to be stuck in an apartment? Or is it better to move out to the suburbs? Or maybe even to some small town. Maybe, you know, it's a, you know, it's a different co cost of living, different li kind of lifestyle. But if, God forbid, something like this happens, you're not stuck in, you know, uh, the epicenter of the epidemic. Even if, you know, you, people decide to keep using mass transit, how many people want to work in mass transit right now? Now that they know this is probably one of the primary vectors for spreading a disease like this. These are really big questions at New York City and very uncomfortable questions for New York City. And I suspect if you're a progressive, if you're someone who lives, you know, if, you li if you're a Democrat, you love New York City. You know, if you're a, uh, a, an environmentalist, you love the idea of everybody taking public transportation. The idea that public transportation could be dangerous for people is an idea you really don't want to hear about right now. And that's where we are. And that's my sneaking suspicion that we, you know, as much as it's hard to get some people to realize what the danger of the virus is, there are going to be a lot of people on, in the uh, progressive firmament who will not want to acknowledge how dangerous public transportation could be under these circumstances. Jim, I don't think we should be too hard on Governor Cuomo, though. I mean, uh, everybody pretty much started sheltering in place in mid-March. And as soon as early May, he was actually holding up the trains to have them cleaned. I mean, it only took him almost two months. <laughs> okay, so a good example of, you know, life in, uh, uh, in this environment. So yesterday, I, I, you know, I, I write my lengthy thing on hydrochloroquine and chloroquine, how it works and all that kind of stuff. I'm very pleased. Uh, I like seeing a lot of big reaction. I like seeing readership go up. I like seeing lots of clicks, you know, what you do matters. Yesterday, I see the headline. My attitude is, okay, you know, about the cleaning up for the first, CBS News, quote, for the first time in 115 years, overnight subway service in New York City has been shut down to clean trains amid the pandemic. Now, it's not like they never clean the trains otherwise, but they generally don't clean them with this kind of depth um, and this intensely as they did earlier this week. So Greg, I tweet out, New York City discovers a revolutionary new process called cleaning trains. Um, <laughs> 
and that that's the one that that's the tweet that has blown up bigger than any of my serious reporting any of the, <laughs> any of the really important stuff i want people to read nah, but the funny joke about new york city being a, a filthy you know uh, rat roach infested uh hellhole oh that part's funny that goes that goes around the world so Sometimes the short attention span tweets are the ones that uh, that really do well. Jim, uh, hopefully we have some good news tomorrow, but uh, three definite crazies today. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and also leave us a kind review with five stars. If you have those devices where the government can spy on you, you can get us on there too. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And most importantly, please join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.